Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is Gareth and Sam's conversation with Professor Alwyn Purdue, and I think you're going to want to hear it. It's, it's another excellent episode of Shrapnel. Please like, rate, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Tell people about this series. Uh, I think it's really important that we continue to have these conversations, and the guys are delighted with the feedback they've had so far. Uh, if you do enjoy them, if you can, if you have the few quid, please support us. We have no ads, no sponsors. We rely totally on listeners you pay it forward you join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise uh, the link is there in the podcast you're listening to now see if there's a level that suits you suits your budget and maybe help us keep those mics on and these conversations happening i won't delay any further enjoy the podcast Welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm Sam McElwain and I'm joined by my co-host Gareth Mavenna. Hello Gareth. Hi Sam, how are you? Uh, not too bad. Tonight we're joined by Professor Alwyn Purdue. Uh, I hope I pronounced it right. Uh, she is the Director of the Centre for Public History and a Professor at Queen's University in Belfast. So Alwyn, thank you for joining us. It's good to be here, thanks for having me. Hi Alwyn, thanks for coming. I suppose I should really kick off with um, why... Uh, I thought you'd be a good guest, and it's basically to plug us uh, a bit of bit of ego massaging. Uh, it's it's more to do with the fact that you're going to preach hopefully tonight on the fact that people should come forward and give their stories on the past. Uh, what me and Gareth have been trying to do for quite some time. Um, what are your what are your feelings on that subject? It's an interesting question, um, and there's a lot of debate about. The past and the role of the past, especially in situations such as Northern Ireland. Um, there's a lot of people who would argue, and a lot of my colleagues would argue and have argued with me, that the past is better left alone, um, that history is actually at the root of the problem. Um, we spend far too much time in Northern Ireland dwelling on on the past, on past wrongs, who's perpetrated wrongs against who else, and um, you know, ideas of, of victimhood, etc. Um, and, and also, I mean, if you just even look at our landscape uh, across our cities and towns, the way in which the past is used to, I suppose, mark territory, to denote who's, who's in and who's out, who belongs and who doesn't. Um, so the past can be used in lots of really, really negative ways, especially in places like Northern Ireland. Um, but my argument would be that, like, we as historians, for example, have a, a real onus on us to engage in public arenas, to engage audiences with exploring the past and exploring the past together. I think there's a real value and importance in hearing multiple stories, hearing people's stories, in people being able to articulate their senses of the past. Um, and it's something you know we might come back to later, but there's certainly a sense in which a lot of people's stories aren't being heard. A lot of narratives aren't being heard. And I think there's real, it's really, really important that we uh, do more work together to try and redress that. Yeah, and, and I'd also like to point out to the public listening that the angle that you're coming from is the social fabric of the past, <laughs> how communities were cohesive and worked or didn't work with each other within it, uh, rather than what me and Gareth sort of focus on with the... The loyalism side of thing. Yours you're is a wider scope, but with a, a more sort of, I don't know, natural feel to it with with the community being involved. Um, yeah. Is there any particular sort of time period you're looking at 
first and foremost? Yeah, so, I mean, my, um, as a historian, my journey went from, from, uh, I started off exploring the, the big house, the landed aristocracy in Ulster. Um, I went from that to the workhouse. So from the big house to the workhouse, um, how the mighty have fallen. Um, but I am really interested in, in the ordinary stories, particularly of urban life. I'm really interested in uh, the history of Belfast. I have edited one collection of essays and have another one that's actually just come out this week on the work of Belfast Charitable Society and their role in in sort of looking after public health, welfare, etc. In, in the 19th century city. So my um, my work really starts around 1850, um, the period after the Great Potato Famine, the period during which Belfast experienced real growth. Um, and my interest is very much on, on how ordinary people experienced growth and experienced industrial growth. We hear all this stuff about what a brilliant industrial city Belfast was, great powerhouse at the end of the 19th century. But for the ordinary people that, that lived and worked and actually made Belfast the great city it was, the experience wasn't always good. Um, and certainly then as we move into the 20th century and into the, the, the 1920s and the 1930s, periods of extreme unemployment, um, period of, of extreme hardship, uh, when unbelievably uh, those who were in need in Belfast still depended on the poor law and still ended up being admitted to the workhouse. Um, so those the sort of period from 1853 to about 1940 would be the, the period I'm most interested in. And it's certainly about ordinary working people and their experience of living in the city. I, th- I think it's interesting, Alwyn, you know, when you talk about that period of time and, and going back, you know, for me, oral history is a big thing. But I suppose in the period you, you're an expert in and you're, you were looking at, people weren't really encouraged to talk about their experiences to the same extent that, that they are in, in this day and age. Now, I think what we see in the workhouse records and, and different written records like that, we see like a fleeting glimpse of somebody's life. And you see that in programs like Who Do You Think You Are? You know, where you have like a line about somebody, about uh, birth, marriage, death or whatever. But I think now we've got a real opportunity to amplify people's experiences. And I'm not just talking about the troubles, I'm talking about everyday life. And um, how, how does public history play play a part in amplifying those voices? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, as you say, if you go back to sort of the, the records of the those who were poor, those who were disadvantaged, um, they don't tend to leave written records of themselves. Uh, and therefore, for the historian of that period, it's very, very difficult to find those people in the records. Um, but the role of public history is very much about giving voice to those who don't normally let their voices be heard or have the opportunity to be heard. And there's been, there's been an incredible amount of oral history going on, a lot of it actually based in, in Queens. Um, my colleague, uh, Professor Sean O'Connell, for example, has been doing some incredible work around Sailor Town um, and in other parts of Belfast, the Holy Lands as well, looking at the stories of people um, who lived in those communities and how the changing landscape of the city has impacted on ordinary uh, working class communities. And, you know, in the past, those those people's stories would not have been heard. We wouldn't have heard what everyday life was like. Um, and I think public history is about working together collaboratively with communities and with ordinary people to, to get a um, multiplicity of voices heard, to hear people's stories um, in a way that in other ways perhaps we wouldn't and to 
I suppose in some ways to leave those, we think of oral, oral history collections, that is now a record that is there for historians in the future to better understand uh, social conditions, economic conditions in the period we're looking at. But also the role of public history is not to create an archive for historians. It's actually to um, to engage ordinary people in not just creating history, but in understanding and and learning more about the past um not just their own past but that of others i think i think it's i mean that's fascinating because it really does sort of level the playing field in a way um i, I remember uh doing some teaching over in lagan village uh well it was world war one history and i um arranged to bring the class into the public record office to work with some of the material in there and when I mentioned the public record office to these people, they basically were of the opinion, "What the, we're not, we, we're not allowed in there. That's that's not for us." So, and and Prony have been really good with that in recent years about engaging people, doing the collaborations with the Nerve Center, uh, the Making the Future project, getting people in the, the pandemic diaries as well. And um, that in itself will become a record. So, it, I think it's there. There's an engagement now with public history and and the partners of of the public historians in terms of not only recording these stories and, and um, engaging with these communities, but also making them feel part of the whole process. Yeah, you're absolutely right. No, completely. For me, that's, that's the value of public history. Um, you know, historians too often in the past have tended to research for and write for themselves, and it's a bit of an echo chamber in the ivory tower. Um, the reality is that people are interested in history that's real life. People are interested in their own history, but too often... Um, people do feel intimidated slightly by places like Prony or even museums. I mean, uh, you're right that, that Prony's doing incredible work. Um, I mean, the Collab Archive project's incredible, uh, getting people right in there, working with the archives and seeing what they can find. But um, you know, we're seeing this as well, the Ulster Museum, for example, now working uh, more closely to, to ensure that, that multiple voices are, are represented there. And again, you know, if you look at the Ulster Museum, for example, it's in the most affluent part besides Belfast. A lot of people would say, like, I'm never going to go there. There's nothing there that's of any interest to me. But the reality is what we need to, to what we need to do is to work towards making sure that people are represented in those spaces. And if people are represented there and they see something of themselves there, then there's more likelihood of them actually engaging with those institutions. And even, you know, apart from Apart from issues of you know, sectarian division or class or anything in Northern Ireland, particularly now as Northern Irish society becomes more diverse, um, and there are quite a few you know minority ethnic communities within Northern Ireland who who just don't see themselves represented at all in any of our public history institutions. There's work to be done there as well um, in terms of of working with communities to see how can we do more to ensure that that many different People and many different voices are actually represented and heard. Well, I think you know, just when you say about the ethnic minorities, there, you know, you've got the Chinese community on Donegal Pass um, coexisting with the Loyalist community, and you know, people might not understand the nuances of that, or or the you know, it's only when you go into communities and actually talk to people, you realise that there's uh, there's more sort of depth to the stories and experiences. But but the one thing that's always fascinated me is the Vietnamese immigration to Northern Ireland and the stories of those people. I, I think, I'm not sure, but the, I think they ended up living in Craig Avon, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I, I often wonder, that's a story, to the best of my knowledge, that hasn't been explored properly. And 
you know, even thinking about um, other marginalised communities like the LGBTQ plus community and the work Richard O'Leary is doing with that at the moment and trying to preserve that history. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that people literally couldn't talk about their experiences because of fear of prosecution. So there's so many strands of history here that we're only now beginning to be able to talk about or the people who were involved are beginning to be able, uh, beginning to, be able to talk about. And I think that Vietnamese thing for me, it's always stuck in my head that that's a really interesting story and it, it, somebody should really do something with that. Absolutely agree. There's so many uh, projects in there that need to be done if only we had the time to do them. But, <laughs> you know, the, the stories of, of Northern Ireland are so complex and it's something... You know, I think people who aren't from here, and even some people who are from here, aren't as aware of as they should be, is the complexity, is the nuance, is is the fact that it's not straightforward. It's not in black and white. Nothing ever is. And that's where the value of really ensuring that multiple voices are heard comes, is, is the multiple narratives and getting those narratives out there. Um, and it's only really through that that we begin to gain a slightly better understanding of, of the complexities of identity and senses of belonging and the history of this place. I mean, I had the, the, the fortune to work on a project about 20 years ago when they were converting the old burial records from City Cemetery in Glenlina onto a database. Um, and it, it was it was very illuminating to see the class distinction. Now, the books themselves, that the, the burial records were in, didn't... There weren't different ones for the richer and the poorer and for the Protestant and the Catholic. They were all in the same book. But it's how they died, why they died, and the age they died at became very apparent. So that resource at that time, I didn't realise how how important it was for the fabric. We were talking about oral histories, but sometimes those voices are silenced far too quickly. And we have to fall back then on, on the burial records. So the likes of the City Cemetery in Glenelina, to me, especially for the Protestant community of, of Belfast where they're now cut off, because I, I know of quite a few graves, including my grandfathers and grandmothers that we visit, but it's just a plot of land because there's no headstones left anymore and we don't feel not safe, but welcome going up and visiting the graveyard itself. Um, but that fabric, that that research, are you using any of it to bring it to the community? I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing that we are doing. and It's something in the Centre for Public History that, that we're very keen on is... is it's working alongside communities, working alongside organisations um, to try and amplify voices. Um, and, you know, the kind of project that you're talking about is exactly the sort of thing that we're, we're really interested in. And I think one of the, you know, one of the points there is going back to what you're saying about a particular community feeling now that their, their history is not the history of that place anymore. It's not recognised as such and therefore they don't feel that they're represented there or, or welcome. You know, that's something that public history really can work to address by by digging deeper, by going back and by telling those different stories that, that aren't always heard and aren't always part of the narrative. Um, the other thing, obviously, is, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier about the interest in social history, but in a place like Northern Ireland where where we, we spend a lot of time you know, focusing on the past of um, battles that were lost or won or riots that took place or, you know, atrocities that took place. And, and there's a lot of talk about that. The ordinary stories of everyday life, those are the things that actually help us to realise that there's more that unites us than divides us. 
Um, what was it like for working class people living on the falls and the shangle? Probably very similar, to be perfectly honest. And I think the kind of work that's being done to encourage local communities to explore their own histories. Uh, there's multiple benefits there, but one of them would be the sense of, of finding shared spaces at where um finding spaces that they can explore where the histories are actually, hey, you know, my grandfather went exactly through the same thing that you're talking about. I mean, for example, several years ago, one of the projects I had the privilege to work on was really, really interesting project involved working alongside um, several organisations in Belfast, but bringing together groups of young people from uh, nationalist and unionist uh, communities um, in Belfast and um, looking at 1932 in particular. So 1932 being a year when there were extreme sectarian divisions in Belfast, there were rioting, many people were killed as a result of uh, sectarian uh, violence. But it was also a period when Catholics and Protestants from the Shankland and the Falks came together and united over issues of welfare and united over the way in which unemployment benefits were being distributed or not. Um, so taking that moment and um, bringing these young people to Queen's telling them about the story of 1932 and how, you know, workers from the Falls and workers from the Shangle fought together um, for a better deal in terms of welfare uh, and then send them back to their own communities to do a bit of cross-generational um, oral history, talking to their grandparents about, you know, what was life, life like for you growing up. And then they came back together and each of the two groups and find a different way of representing what they'd find to each other and to a wider audience. Um, and it was incredible. And one group did um, a dramatic reading and another group decided they were going to do an exhibition um, based largely on old newspaper cuttings. But the stories that they were telling to each other were the same stories. And for those young people, that was a moment of real realisation. It was like, we're the same. And I think that's really, really important. Hi, I'm going to interrupt your podcast right there. And the reason I'm going to interrupt it is to tell you a bit about the Tortoise Shack. The Tortoise Shack was set up five years ago and we've done over 900 podcasts on the Echo Chamber podcast alone. And there are other podcasts on our platform. And you're probably listening to one of those podcasts now, either Re Reboot or one of the other great podcasts on our platform. We only survive by having patrons. And I understand it's difficult for everybody at the moment. Everybody's feeling the pinch. But if you want to know why you're feeling the pinch and understand the reasons behind why you're feeling the pinch, well then, the tortoise shack is the source for you. Now, there are people listening to this who can afford to be patrons. So please, sign up and become a patron. Remember, the tortoise shack survives on patrons alone. Pay it forward. Let those who can't afford to listen to it, listen to it on your dime. That's what this is all about. Informing people, making sure they know why they are where they are and how to, to solve these situations and make things better for everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm going to let you go back to your podcast now. So when you're engaging communities like that and, and investigating the past and finding commonality, one of the... Um, obstacles myself and Sam have often talked about and Sam being from a loyalist community and being a loyalist myself being a researcher of loyalism from from the other side of the fence 
one thing that we we get frustrated by is and you hear it a lot in social media as well in this day and age, people complaining that their stories aren't told, that they aren't being heard, that the other side get the films, get the all the sort of uh, platforms. What we would advocate is that people take ownership and, and do it themselves and investigate the history and, and tell their stories. So we we have seen moments of momentum where, pe- where people do feel galvanised and they feel empowered to, to take ownership of that and, and go off on a journey themselves. But it seems to fizzle out very quickly as well. So, how how what advice would you give the communities to sort of keep the momentum going and keep keep furrowing that brow and, and finding out more about their their community and telling their stories? Yeah, it's, it is a real problem, isn't it? Um, sustainability of these projects. Sometimes they start with best will in the world and they start really well, um, but it is really hard to keep that momentum going. I think one of the things is to try and get as many people as invo- involved as possible. It's very often some of these things are um, due to the hard work and enthusiasm um, of a handful of people. And a lot of the work falls on a handful of people. And, and that isn't sustainable. And very often uh, those people end up uh, not being in a position where they can carry on the project anymore. So the more people that can get involved, the more... Um, excitement it generates within the local community, I think the more chance there is of it being successful. And also working collaboratively again, I think that is important that there is strength in numbers. Um, and while while a very local focus can be really good for that particular community, um, sometimes even teaming up occasionally with other community projects that are happening in other places can just give you that sense of not being completely on your own and isolated. The sharing of ideas, sharing of expertise, coming together with other groups can sometimes, I think, really give you a sense of you're actually part of something bigger as well as having a very community-based focus as well. Um, so I think really collaborating as much as possible uh, and just looking at lots of different ways as well of communicating with wider audiences. Um, social media is great. Social media is has its problems, but it certainly is it's a great way of getting word out about what you're doing and sharing what you're doing. And I think the energy and excitement can be generated that way quite a lot. Owen, is there any advice you would give to community groups who are either embarking on this or who have ran the course and there's material lying about that they have gathered through whatever means uh, that have oral history or written history or, or any exhibition stuff, what they can do with that material rather than just sit in somebody's bedroom in a box. Is there anywhere that that can go to? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of options there. There are, for example, um, you know, we talked earlier about Prony and, and Prony are very interested in community history and there's a real interest at the minute in collecting the histories of ordinary ordinary everyday life and ordinary people um so if there are collections of materials certainly you know consider approaching Brony um and at least have that conversation um because there may be interest there museums as well local museums very often are interested in in collecting and and, and holding and um, exhibiting materials relating to local communities as well um Approach academics that might be interested, local historians, um, put it out in social media as well, just to sort of to see if there's any interest out there in, in looking at ways in which this stuff, as you say, rather than sitting in boxes or on tape somewhere, can actually reach wider audiences. Um, because it is such a shame when people do a lot of work 
and then it ends up languishing somewhere and never really gets out there. So talk to people, get word out as much as possible and, and you know, look where you might get a bit of help. There's funding as well. Sometimes it can be funding for community-led projects. Um, certainly, you know, if you look at the likes of the Great Place North Belfast project, where there are lots of different heritage organizations, very small heritage organizations, but working together as part of a bigger body and it's funded uh, from, from organizations like Heritage Lottery Fund, etc. Um, that sort of bigger coordination can sometimes be really great as well. And you get teams of volunteers involved and even our students on the MA and public history are always looking for internship opportunities as well. So um, there's certainly lots of ways to make it happen. Yeah, when you say about Great Place, North Belfast, I mean, I'm from North Belfast and fr from the Antrim Road. And um, recently I've seen the resurgence in interest in Brian Moore's career. Mm -hmm. And we've got the mural, um, the uh, Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn, down at the Duncairn Centre. And it reminds me, one of the things my mum, it was my, my mum was a big Brian Moore fan and brought me to a talk that he did in Queens years ago. I was probably very reluctant to go. I was like a moody teenager at the time. But the important thing was, I remember her constantly saying about Brian Moore's house, which was opposite Clifton Street, Orange Hall. Mm -hmm. And she said, look, something should be done with this. You know, it should be a heritage site or it should be a museum. But there wasn't the interest in Brian Moore's career. And now that building's gone. And you just think it, it would have dovetailed nicely with the resurgence of interest and that's the, the importance of the built environment the built heritage and the storytelling and the and the records they all come together eventually and and, and they tell a bigger story so people need to realize that there are things of important it might not seem important at the moment but they will they'll have their time yeah you're absolutely right um and i think that again that's where telling stories and, and generating interest in people's stories and the significance of places then as well um, you know, it makes such a difference then whenever there is value attached to these places and people realise the value attached. I mean, the work I was doing, for example, in the workhouse, it was really frustrating to realise that there's only one tiny bit of the old workhouse left on the what is now Belfast City Hospital site. You know, 20 years ago, I think there were lots of buildings and they've just been bulldozed one after the other. So, I mean, the hospital needs new facilities, so it can't hold on to Victorian buildings forever. But... You know, again, like so many historic buildings are being lost because um, we just we're not aware of the significance that they have for the people of this place. And I suppose talking about North Belfast and, and the northwest of Belfast, when we're talking about the buildings that are being lost, there's two there at the minute that are close to my heart. One is Crumman Road Courthouse, which is mm. an absolute tragedy the way it's gone, um, and Fern Hill House up in the Glencairn Park. Mm. I mean, both are sites of, to me, utmost importance to this to this place and our, and our history and yet we we let them go to wreck and ruin literally um so the city hospital has some sort of excuse because it needs to expand and provide a service but crumino courthouse and fernhill house are both sitting there and they're just rotting away um if there were community groups out there willing to take this so i mean is that something that funding is available for for restoration and it's going to be a heck of a project for either to be honest be a massive project, wouldn't it? I mean, like if there was funding there, I think we'd be queuing up for it. Just to see those buildings, as you say, just go into rack and ruin. And there's so much potential, especially where they are and especially with the focus that there is you know, on the heritage trails of North Belfast at the minute. Crumlin Road is, is surely one of the, the jewels in the crown or has the potential to be, uh, and Fernhill as well. So, yeah, I mean, 
It's deeply frustrating, uh, and as a historian of Belfast, for me to, to see the state that they're in, and and the fact that there doesn't at this point in time seem to be funding. You know, who knows in the future if if, if there was enough concerted um, effort made at community level and collaboration with a number of different uh, organisations, institutions, etc. Maybe we can hope that something might be done, but certainly. Uh, Something does need to be done with those buildings because it is a shame the way they are at the minute. And there, there's so much potential there, again, like so many other buildings across the city, for helping us understand the value of what we've got. Um, you look at like North Street as well and sort of the, the arcade and, and the loss of that. That's another, it's a travesty really. And, and, the, and the history associated with that place is now just the, the fabric is lost. Um, maybe they're in people's memory, but um, I think it goes back to what you said earlier, Gareth, about bringing together the, the interests and, and the, the, the realisation of the significance of the built heritage along with the oral history, the stories, and connecting built heritage and cultural heritage together. It, it becomes much more compelling and more powerful. <clears throat> Absolutely. There's more impact when you can actually see a building and hear the story about it than the people who lived in it. Um, yeah, it's a shame what's happened happened to that part of Belfast, which which leads me on nicely, really, you know, not not being a downer, but, you know, your research interests, urban poverty, welfare and public health. I mean, you're looking at the mid 19th century and the early 20th century, but these are three themes that are very relevant to the society we live in today and Belfast in particular. So what what sort of lessons from your historical research into those areas can we uh, bring into the year 2022, if that's not too difficult to question? Yeah, it is a, it's a, <laughs> it's a challenging question. I mean, it, it is incredible how the resonance that I'm seeing, um, looking at, at issues around poverty in, in the mid late Victorian period um, and into the 20th century, and the dependence on uh, charity, uh, the fact that the state was giving a certain amount, but it was never, ever enough to keep people from absolute destitution. Uh, the dependence on, on other people, on other people's goodwill. Uh, and now, you know, we're, we're looking today at the, a situation where food banks and the use of food banks is higher than it's been like in living memory, um, where the welfare service that we have and the health service that we have, while we are very, very grateful for it, um, there are serious issues there around funding and around management, etc. Um, and, you know, it is depressing, but the lessons that I've learned from looking at the past is that some things just don't change. And, you know, we, we do need to take a serious look uh, at what we're doing today in terms of provision for those, not just those who aren't working, but those who are in work and yet are ex really struggling. And I think that's a major issue today. Uh, for, for many, many people who, especially as we head into this winter with fuel prices and all the rest of it rising, you know, people holding down not one, but maybe several jobs and still struggling to make ends meet. Um, these are challenging times. And I think, you know, going back to, to, to history again, um, I think one of the, the benefits of, of engaging with the past is very often that sense of, the sense of struggling, the sense of struggling to get by can leave you feeling very isolated. Um, you feel that you're struggling and you're feeling and you're letting your family down. But the reality is that your story is the story of many, many other people at the same time and also in the past. And I think by actually engaging with 
the history of your community or the history of your area or, or the history of of what it was like to struggle in the past, the, the, what it was like to have to try and sort of feed your kids and work and balance everything, it can actually help you make sense of your present and it can help you make, it can help you feel less isolated as well and part of something bigger. And sometimes even from a an emotional, mental health, well-being perspective, I think that that sense of being part of something bigger could have a really positive impact. Um, and, you know, for me, I think that's, one of the real benefits of, of community history, of engaging with a, an exploration of, of your history as part of a group and part of the community, you, you do realise that you're part of something bigger and it gives you a stronger sense of place, a stronger sense of belonging. So even though you're struggling in lots of different ways, um, I think there can be something in that that can, that can bring real benefits to communities and individuals. And, and on the back of that all, when the communities that suffered at the turn of the last century, are the same communities suffering at the turn of this century? I mean, nothing has really changed in, in those, in, in the lines that we draw with, with the areas that are the most deprivation again, are the, are the same sort of areas that we had at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. It, it, does that make the social fabric fabric of that community a bit more steely? That, that As you're saying, that come together through adversity, have you seen that in your research that those kind of areas are tighter knit, more communal? I think I think you're right. I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of the communities, a lot of those areas of Belfast that suffered deprivation a hundred years ago weren't still experiencing that today. Um obviously there are new areas um of deprivation and new areas where um we're seeing high levels of unemployment or um various sort of issues like that um that New types of housing that have been built in the mid twentieth century, but but if we go back to sort of the old parts of Belfast, those are very often areas that struggled in the past. Um, and I think through that struggle, there is a sense of community, a sense of being of of, of everybody on the street experiencing it together and and often looking out for each other and that's something that that you sort of find I mean I I noticed this looking back at the 20s and 30s and some of the stuff that I've been reading about then a real sense in which um, people pulled together at times of need people did support each other and even looking you know outside of Belfast but moving to rural uh, Ulster uh, the research in the, the sort of 40s and 50s found that that people, regardless of of religious affiliation or political persuasion, um, neighbours helped neighbours at difficult times, um, and there was a real sense of that. I think really up until the conflict, uh, it divided people in a way that we feel that we're never going to get back from. I think. Well, Alwyn, that was uh, fascinating. I don't have any further questions. I'm not sure if Sam has anything to add, but it's it's really enlightening to hear about you know the importance of public history and social history, and and you know how it can bind communities together, and and maybe we can find some sort of commonality in in that shared history, and even if it's not shared experience rather than shared history, I suppose there's universal experiences of poverty and welfare you know that, that everyone's experiencing at the moment i think it's important to learn learn lessons from that so um i'm not sure if sam wants to come in here no i think after your last question gareth i think we'll, we'll let all went off and you threw a curveball yeah. at her there i think yeah. um but no <laughs> it's a difficult one yeah it, it really yeah it, it really is 
both enlightening and disheartening to see that sort of the repetition of, of time uh, and the repetition of history. And, uh, and as Gareth says, history sometimes can be rewritten and sort of moulded to however they, somebody wants it. But the experiences can't be rewritten or remoulded. The experiences are lived and felt and, and passed on. So those experiences need to be recorded. And um, if we can ever help with anything you're doing, give us a shout as well. Uh, and, and hopefully you'll, you'll listen in to see... And this could be a bit of a resource for you, hopefully, further down the line. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully so. Thank you both very much. It's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> well, hopefully you, we'll get you back on again uh, sometime in the future, Robin. 